Okay, join me, please. Chapter number 20 of the book of Revelation. Yes, we are working our way toward the last couple of chapters here. These things that we start to see today are things that are being brought to an end. I want you to get a picture of what we're about to see in chapter 20 here. This first half of the chapter, up to verse number 10, will be the earth's last 1,000 years. The earth's last 1,000 years during the reign of Christ. We were talking about this in our elder meeting this morning, and, you know, there's a lot going on in our world, and half of it's on fire, it seems. Um, But this world has to last another 1,007 years. And that's reality. And uh, chapter 20 tells you about the last thousand years. And we're going to look at that here today. And then we go into the second part of the chapter, which I'm going to break it in half. Somebody told me slow down, so I'm going to slow down that much at least. The second half from verse 11 to 15, not exactly half, but sort of talking about the last judgment called the Great White Throne Judgment. And folks, It's not a section that is in any way encouraging for the world around us, but it has to be preached. And I hope that as we spend time looking at that, it might just captivate our our attention and our souls. And I'm going to give a whole message just to those last four or five verses, because they are stunning when you stop and see what's happening there. In case you haven't noticed, chapter 19 and 20, uh, they're not real happy themes. We were kind of hoping when we got to this, that when pastor said, good news is coming, that you'd be, whoa, this is going to be great. It's all, you know, uh, lemonade and warm sunshine and happy feelings and all this stuff. And I don't know about you, but maybe you were surprised with, chapter 19 and the second coming of Christ. And it wasn't all happy stuff, was it? It was really hard stuff. And do you know what? Scripture is consistent on that all the way from the first time they started mentioning the coming of Christ. When he comes in judgment, he meant it. And we say, well, where's the happy stuff in that? Well, This book was written to the church to tell us what the Lord is going to do, and it's necessary that he do that because he's promised that. And so it wasn't about our happiness. It was the reality that our Savior is coming, and it's a good thing to know him. It's a good thing to know him in light of what those will experience who don't. So, we're into chapter 20, and we're going to talk about the millennial reign of Christ. And there might be some surprising things in here for you as well as we go through it. But uh, follow with me as I read the first ten verses here of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, And bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones 
And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Then, verse 7, I mean when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from prison. He will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sands of the seashore. They came up on a broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophets are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Wow. That's a lot of material to cover. You ready? Seatbelts on? This is going to be a, quite a ride. Heavenly Father, help us today as we look at these words to get an understanding, but most of all, to get a view of you, to know you better, to trust you more. Do your work in our lives, for this is a time when we are built up in Christ, and we are ready for that. We pray especially help us to understand today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, first part of this, the earth's last 1,000 years is set before you. Contrary to what the political and ecological world wants you to believe, the earth still has 1,007 years to go. Now, the worst years are still before it. We've been looking at that, haven't we? Chapters number 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, it just got worse and worse and worse. Those years are yet before it. Think of a time, imagine this, where all the vegetation, the trees, the plants, they're all gone. Imagine a time when the seas and the freshwater are destroyed and of no value to you. Imagine when all these things will take place and you've got the tribulation period when it reaches toward the end of that. And yet, it will survive a thousand years after that. Isn't that important to know? We sometimes panic when we read the newspapers. Don't use the newspapers as your commentary on what God is doing. God's Word tells you what God is doing. Too many times we interpret the times, we even interpret His Word, by what we read in the paper. The Lord still has plans, and they're going to be fulfilled, by the way, to the very hour and minute and second that He says. That's how confident I am with Him fulfilling His Word. Every bit of it will be fulfilled. And so I'm very careful in what I'm presenting to you today in the book of Revelation. I tell you over and over, I'm doing it from a literal perspective. And I'm trying to stay that course all the way through. I just let the words speak for themselves. 
I don't want to embellish them. I, I don't want to use allegory. I don't want to use uh, symbolism. I don't want to use a non-literal approach in any way to govern the text. And when I get to chapter 20, it's no different. If I've done it for 19 chapters, shouldn't I do it the rest of the way? You're okay with that? That's what I'm going to do. So as I approach this chapter, it's very important that we stay literal in our interpretation. There are many who see chapter 20 as something other than literal. It has dominated theological thinking for a long time that chapter 20 is not to be taken literal. Some say that uh, it's about the millennial and we're living in it right now. You know what? I look out the window and I don't think so. I'm pretty sure it's not. You want to test that, go grab the first snake. Okay. Not like that, whatever's living up there, right? We had a story about that this past week. There was something in there, but now they're all going to move. Don't move, Kim. It's okay. There's something up there, but uh, we don't know what it is. If there's no decorations for Christmas, you know why. There's something up there. Some say that Jesus is right now on this throne of the millennial period. Right now, he's already ruling in the millennial kingdom in a figurative way, in a spiritual way. Some believe the millennial is over already. You missed it. You missed the rapture, you missed the tribulation, and you've even missed the millennial reign of Christ. I don't know what's after that. That's still here on this earth. It doesn't make sense to me theologically to say, oh, it's all over now then this book, you might as well close it. It's finished. Well, there are a lot of non-literal positions here. But if I've been consistent this far, I've got to stay that way. And I believe chapter 20 is to be taken literally. He starts in the New American Standard Version with the word then. Or, if you have a King James, it says and. Doesn't that imply that you're adding to what you just said? Yes. I think so. I think of almost chapter 20 like, like one of the little children trying to tell you about their day. You know how they talk and they don't stop and there's a lot of ands and it just keeps going and they speak in a very high voice and very excited voice and you get a ton of material and then you've got to figure out how to put it all together. John is writing, he says, and, 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 and you can hear it. Even his pen is raising its voice as it goes. He's so excited about what he's doing. He's writing this, and he says, and, and the word then fits there just as well. The idea is that we are still on the same thing, but we're building, we're adding, we're adding, we're adding. So why change what we've been doing? If everything else has been taken that way, let's keep going. Then, he says, then, so he's tying it to something, right? He's tying it to something. Chapter 19, we talked about his second coming. The second coming of Christ. Where he captures and he punishes the Antichrist and the false prophet. We thought that was good news. 
We saw the destruction of the armies at the Battle of Armageddon. We saw that last week in chapter 19. Not a pretty picture at all, but we did see that. And John says, and he's not done yet with what's going to happen with the second coming of Christ. So we carry it right into verse number one of chapter 20. He has to tell you about Satan's arrest. That's what I'm going to call it for now. Verse number one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. You might have the word bottomless pit there. What does that tell you? It's a pit that's what? Bottomless. That sounds easy, doesn't it? Can you imagine it? That's kind of tough. It's abyss. From all the indications here, it's on the earth. We saw it in previous chapters. This abyss is mentioned. Matter of fact, Revelation talks of it seven times. Seven different times it brings up this place. And it always speaks of it, not as a symbolic thing, but as a real thing. And it talks about it being here on this earth. I'm not looking for it. I don't want to find it. All right? I don't know if you ever will. Makes you wonder where it might be. I'm not going to go there. But there's a lot of references. Seven times over, the book of Revelation mentions it. And this one, I know, that every time it's mentioned, nothing good comes out of that thing. Nothing good comes out of that thing, and nothing good ever goes into that thing. You will remember in Luke chapter 8, one of the other references to it, that the demons were pleading with Jesus not to throw them into that pit. He gave them the other option. Remember the pigs? Satan is going to be punished in the bottomless pit. It says that an angel came down with the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he ties up, as we keep going with this thing, lays hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, just so you know it's the same guy, And bound him for a thousand years. Imagine this now, for just for a minute. Here's an angel tying up an angel. Sometimes people think that Satan is the counterpart of God somehow, that that as God is all-powerful, Satan's all-powerful. That's impossible, because only one person can be all-powerful. And some people say that Satan is omnipresent. He could be anywhere at all, anywhere at all, just like God is omnipresent. And that's not true. If he's tied up in a pit for a thousand years, he can't be anywhere else, can he? No, he's an angel. And some angel ties him up. A strong one. But he ties him up. Binds him in a chain. He can't get out. He's held in a bottomless pit for a thousand years. He can't get out. That's important to see. He is not God, folks. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So he's thrown into this pit. Now, it mentions something interesting here, and bring this up while we're at it in verse number 2. It says that he was bound for a thousand years. You see that in your Bible? Is that there? You see those letters? Let's say 1,000 years, 8,000 years. Count with me something. Just take two hands. But think. 
You see it in verse number two. Laid hold of the dragon and serpent of old, who is devil and Satan, bounded for eight thousand years. Verse number three threw him into the abyss, shut it, and sealed it over him that he would not deceive the nations any longer until what? The thousand years were released. That's two. Go to verse number four. Look at the last part of the verse four. And they came to life and reigned with Christ. What? That's three. You counting? Verse number five, the rest of the dead did not come into life until what? thousand years. We're up to four. Verse number six, very end, and they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for? How many we have now? Five? Five. And verse number seven, when the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from prison. How many did we count? Six times. Six times a reference to the thousand years. You saw it, didn't you? There are those, I don't know if you believe this or not, there are those who say the Bible never teaches that Christ will reign for a thousand years. They don't believe this. They say, no, it's not there. I don't know what they're reading, folks. You just counted with me. It says it. That's not my imagination unless we're all imagining at the same time here. It's written in the Word. And I think tomorrow when you open this up and look again, you're going to see that same phrase still there, aren't you? One commentary said this is exactly what we've done. We have used our imaginary thousand years and we've used a figurative tribulation for all this study. He called it imaginative. Literally, he said that in his commentary, that we are just imagining something. Just let me say this. Their, their approach to hermeneutics is so much harder to do than it is just to take it for what God says. It's so much easier to read it literally and say, okay, I believe it. Those who take things symbolically would even suggest to you right now that Satan has been bound since Jesus died on the cross and we're living in a spiritual millennium. And I don't know about you, but I see his evidence of activity all around us. And there are those who actually believe he's been bound up all this time. Wouldn't it be nice to think that Satan isn't causing problems in our world today? That would be great to believe. If that's so, then Peter was mistaken. Because Peter wrote some 30 years after the death of Christ that Satan is like a lion that roars about, roams about and roars and seeking somebody to devour. Peter must have been wrong if Satan was already tied up. I think you folks know better. What a day it will be when Satan is bound and held for a thousand years in the abyss. What a day it will be. What a relief to this world to have him bound. It says in verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Threw him into the abyss. Shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until, now we're sad with that word, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. 
John has something else remarkable to say. We're going to come back to this in just a minute. But here's another thing. He's, he's Like I said, he's got a lot to tell you. And so he just told you that, and then he said, Then, and he starts in verse number four. Again, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, he says. Now, here are a couple of pronouns without antecedents in the verse before them to help us. Who are they? What is this when it says them? Now, it won't take as long to track this because you know how a pronoun works, right? You have a pronoun, grammatically you just back up to the previous sentence or just keep backing up until somewhere in the context it tells you who they're talking about, right? That's how a pronoun works. So we can do this. Let's try it. Let's, let's find out who they and them are in verse number four. Let's start backing up. We're looking for a group, obviously, because if it's, a group, if it's they and them, it's more than one person. So it's a group, at least. So, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20, is there any they there other than an angel and Satan? And we're not going to put them on a throne, are we? No. Matter of fact, we know Satan's not one of them. Uh, They cannot be chapter 19, verse 21. There's a group. The rest were killed with the sword which came out of his mouth as he sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's not them. They're killed, right? So it's not them. And I don't think it's the birds either, folks. There's a group there too. It's not the birds that get the throne. All right, so keep backing up. Verse 20. Let's go back to chapter 19, verse 20. There's a beast and there's a false prophet. Now that's a they, that's a them. But what happened to them? They were thrown alive into the lake of fire. Does that mean they're going to sit on a throne? No. So it's not them. We've got to keep backing up. It's not the false prophet. It's not the beast. They are not there. So, chapter 19, 17 through 19. Let's see if this is it. He talks about uh, commanders. He talks about birds again. Let's keep the birds out of the story. He talks about kings. He talks about commanders. He talks about mighty men. He talks about horses. He talks about men who are free, enslaved, and small, and great. And are any of those candidates for these thrones? No, because they are destroyed as well. We read of that. Matter of fact, they're probably the same ones we just referenced in verse number 21. So it's not them. So we've got to keep looking. Who's our antecedent here? Who is it? So up to verse 15 of chapter 19. His mouth, from his mouth came a sharp sword, and with it he might strike down the nations. Is it the nations that are going to sit on the thrones? No, because he just struck them down. It's not the nations. Now, could it be a reference to Jesus? Because he's referenced there, but he's not a they. Does that make sense to you? They sat on the thrones. It was judgment given to them. So it's, it's not a reference to Jesus. So let's keep backing up. Let's go to verse 14. Verse 14. And the armies which were in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Uh-huh. Were they destroyed? No. Were they put in a bottomless pit? No. They're not, they're not 
removed from our story at all. And they're the last group mentioned in reference to being with Christ and following with Him. The last group mentioned. Who are these people? Who are the armies just mentioned here? It's the church. It's the bride. It's mentioned earlier in verse 7 and 8. Remember, he's writing to the church, isn't he? And he brought up the church in this chapter that we are the bride of Christ. He brought up the church that we are the army that comes with him when he comes at the second coming. And if you take all the rest of chapter 19 and the early part of 20 and just move it away for a minute, you can see how naturally the pronouns match. Because they not only have come down with him, and they followed after him, but now he then sets them up on thrones. And judgment is given to them. It's a natural progression, even grammatically. It's the right thing to do to match all these up. This is the church. I'm going to show you why I think that, especially in just a few minutes. But take the battle scenes out for a minute. You have the bride. You have the award ceremony, because she's wearing the gown made up of the righteous acts of the saints. You have the marriage of the Lamb. You have the second coming of Christ. And now you have thrones. That's what he's been telling the church. And in verse number 4, Then I saw thrones. Chapter 20, verse 4. I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. How do I know that's not the tribulational saints? Well, they're not resurrected quite yet. It's at the end of the verse. Another then, or and, and then the Tribulational saints are resurrected. The thrones are already set up before that. It appears that's the case. So I think it's the church. Do you know why? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us, as believers, we're going to rule. Did you know that? We're going to be given roles of judgment. He said in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Now, the judgment, I believe, if we studied it through and had the time, we're talking about an administrative type of judgment. We're not talking about uh, dealing with sin and eternal destiny. We're talking about overseeing affairs and even overseeing angels. Does that surprise you? There's other verses I could take you to. Man is supposed to be promoted above the angel. What is the angel designed for? To serve the saints, right? Hebrews. Go find it in the book of Hebrews. They're, they're, are they not ministering spirits? Sent to render service to the saints? There will come a time when the church will rule. We'll sit on the thrones. And it makes perfect sense, folks. If Jesus is there and he's ruling during the millennial period, does his church come with him? Yes, because that's his promise, right? Where I am, there you will also be. And if we're there with him, his bride, we will reign with him. And isn't that the promise of Scripture? There it is. I think it makes sense to assume that they and them were speaking of the church. Then, verse 4 adds, I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded 
because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast on his, in his Im- or his image, didn't receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The resurrection of tribulational saints. Fact. Fact. Ready? They were already in heaven, weren't they? Remember? As we've been working through this book, chapter 6, verse 11, they were given robes, every one of them, white robes. It said that they would have rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren, that they should be killed as that they were should be fulfilled. In chapter 7, verse 9, And I beheld a great multitude which no man could count, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, and they stood before the Lord, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. In chapter seven, fourteen, their identity is given to us because John says, or the angel says to John, these are those who came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In chapter 15, verse 2, I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them who have gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. What we have seen over and over and over again is references to tribulational saints being in heaven. They were martyred. And we know that's true. We know that's true. Because what do we believe? To be absent from the body? is to be present with the Lord. Isn't that true? Yes. These folks knew it too. We're not talking about them in heaven with physical bodies, but they were there. And it matches, not so uncommon in our thinking. We believe that Jesus Christ, when he comes in the rapture, is coming for the church. And the church bodies will be raised up. And the living bodies will be changed and we shall enter into the presence of the Lord that way, right? When do the tribulational saints get resurrected? Right here in chapter 20, verse 4. It's a separate resurrection than ours. They are resurrected after the tribulation. That makes a lot of sense, by the way. After the tribulation, but before the millennial period actually begins. But it is meant to be distinct from the church. Understand that. Tribulational saints are not the church-age believers. They're a different group. They're going to have their honors, too. Now, I also think, and this is another study for another time, but this is about the time of the resurrection of the bodies of Old Testament saints, too. Sometime they have to be resurrected because, according to the promise, they have to be alive and present in the millennial period. God made them a promise. And it's been carried all the way from Abraham and on on beyond him that God said, I will bring these people into this land and they will have their Messiah rule over them. And they will enjoy his reign. And they will enjoy this land as I promised it to them. That's a a summary of all these things. But that's not the church. That's not the rapture of the church. That's the Old Testament saints coming to life to, to live here on this planet again. You want to start blowing circuits in your mind? This is great. If you go to Ezekiel, for example, chapter 34, verse 23. 
I will set up over them one shepherd, and he shall feed them. He is my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And it says again in chapter 34, verse 24, Ezekiel. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. And if you're not convinced, chapter 37 says it all again of Ezekiel. What is that saying to you? God says, I have made a promise to these folks. I have made a promise to these. And they will stand on this planet, the land I give it to them. David himself will sit in Jerusalem and rule over his people Israel under my authority. Wait till the newspapers get a hold of that. Imagine King David on the throne again. Whew, that's going to be cool. You're going to be here to watch it. Matter of fact, Daniel was told to expect it. Daniel chapter 12, the last, those three verses, 1, 2, and 3. Daniel was told, At that time Michael shall stand up, and the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since the nation to, since that time. And at that time the people shall be delivered, every one of them that's found written in this book. You just saw in one verse the tribulation and the return of Christ. And then what's he say? And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they shall turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. In other words, at that time when Christ comes again, he'll raise up these Old Testament saints. And they will be there. And they will shine as as. Uh, as it says, the brightness of the firmament, they will turn people to righteousness. But as for you, Daniel, just go your way to the end. Enter into your rest. You will rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. The promise is there. I think it's going to fit into this time somewhere around verse number 4. That we're looking at here. There's a resurrection happening here. And he says in the rest of the dead. In verse number 5. The unsaved did not come to life. Until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. We're going to address that next week of course. That's the last half of the book. But the paragraph ends. With a very fascinating simple statement. Either you have life in Christ. Or you don't. Either you have life in Christ, or you don't. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Isn't that beautiful? What is this second death? It's appointed unto man once to die. Isn't that true? Of course it is. Scripture said so. It's appointed unto man once to die. To die twice is horrific. Because you're talking about the second death. It's an eternal death. That's where you're ushered into the lake of fire forever. He's going to talk about that in the next verses to follow. You don't want to be in the second death. You don't want to be there. 
And you won't be there if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. Understand that? You're in one or the other. You're in, in the resurrection to life or the resurrection to death. You're in one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no place to hide. I'll prove that to you next week. There's no place to hide. You have to know Christ. I hope you do. I hope you do. D.L. Moody said he made the biggest mistake of his life one day. He was preaching on a Sunday night. And he was talking about Jesus Christ and the need to know him as your Savior. D.L. Moody said, I want you to go home and think about it for a week. And then come back next Sunday and, and tell me what you thought about receiving Christ as your Savior. He says, as he was closing the service, he can hear the fire alarms going off in the city of Chicago. And that church was not there the next week. And many of those people were not there the next week. The city had burnt to the ground. And he says, I will never give them opportunity for delay. Folks, we don't know what this afternoon will bring, do we? You need to know Christ as your Savior right now. There is no alternative for life apart from Him. You understand? There is no life but through Christ. And if you're going to stand with Him forever and live with Him forever, you need to know Him. Now, some people say, you, you're just scaring them into the kingdom. Yeah, I'm scared to death of missing it too. Aren't you? You wouldn't want that, and you wouldn't want that for anybody you know. Jesus Christ came to pay the penalty for our sins, and you've got to see what the penalty is. It's eternal separation from Christ forever and ever. And I don't want you there. I don't want you there. I want you to know Jesus as your Savior. You could do that right now. Do you know that? Right where you're sitting, you could turn to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, you died for me. And I received this beautiful gift you have. The, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I take the gift. I receive Christ. I'm going to believe him. I'm going to live for him. I know who he is. Do you understand? Do you understand? That's how important it is. We don't know what tomorrow might bring. We don't know what today might bring. But we do know what forever brings if you know Christ as Savior. That's the passage before you right here. Blessed are those. Listen to it again. Blessed are those. Blessed and holy is the one who is a part of the first resurrection. Over these, second death has no power. None. There will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's beautiful. Final statement on Satan. Chapter 27 through 10. When the thousand years were completed, Satan will be released from prison. Why not leave him there? Would you? <laughs> He's gone. Leave him there. Why, why, why let him come back? Why let him come and deceive the nations? Why? First of all, understand, he won't deceive you. As a believer in Christ, glorified body, he won't deceive you. There's no chance of that. He will not deceive any other saint, for that matter, because that's what I believe, that saints can't be deceived and led away from the Lord. But he will deceive the nations, it says. 
Look at the verses 7 through 10. He will deceive the nations. Every living folks in physical body, just like we are right now. People live in nations. People live in cities. There will be leaders of nations. There will be babies born during the millennial period. Unfortunately, there will still be sin. And they will be capable of sin. And this is what's remarkable, folks. Mankind has no excuse. No excuse. Put Adam and Eve in their environment, as perfect as it was. They have no excuses. Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment and didn't even have a sin nature. And they sinned. Right? We read of it. Genesis chapter 3. The millennial folks, picture it for a minute. You're an average person living in the millennium. Jesus Christ is there. You see him. He's ruling. You know it. Physically present. Ruling over his people, over the world. He rules them with a rod of iron. I wonder why he needs a rod of iron. You will see David there. You'll see Jonah there. You'll see Abraham there. You'll see Moses there. Can I keep the list going for a while? You will see, you and me will be there, folks, in glorified bodies. Isn't this remarkable? The church will be there in glorified bodies. Tribulational saints who were alive a little bit ago, dead, now resurrected again, and here they are in glorified bodies. They'll be there. And yet these folks will be deceived and will sin against the Lord. So why let, Satan, why let Satan free? It's to prove to you it's not a perfect environment that saves anybody. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus saves. Put them in the best environment ever, and you will never get a believer out of a perfect environment. But you always get a believer out of Jesus. The evidence is there. Verse 8 and 9, and it will come about that the, he will deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. They came up on a broad plain. They surrounded the camps of the saints, the beloved city. Are we going to be trembling in that city, worried that it's about to fall? Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. That's a pretty fast judgment. Verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, for the beast and the false prophets are, are, see it, are, not were. They were thrown in there a thousand years before. Guess what? They're still there. There's no such thing as annihilation. Some people teach it. It's get, as a matter of fact, it's getting a little too prevalent in the church today. There's no such thing as annihilation. If you're in the lake of fire, you are conscious. And you're alive forever in that place. This verse proves it. Does that scare you? Oh my. It says, they will be tormented day and night forever. They. Notice another they. Who are they? Satan, the false prophet, and the, and the beast. They. All three of them tormented day and night forever and ever. Notice they are not the caretakers of the lake of fire. Contrary to all those cartoons in the far side. They're not there with pitchforks poking people back down into the plains as if they're in charge. It says they're tormented, tormented forever, 
forever. Folks, you just read the last chapter on Satan. He's done. He's punished. Where do you go from here? (laughs) That's only the first half of the chapter. Isn't that amazing? We're going to talk more about this next week. But folks, in the meantime, keep looking up. Keep looking up. That's where your Savior is. Keep your eyes on Him. We don't know the day and the hour of His coming, do we? We wouldn't mind today, would we? Well, okay. Right? You and I, we're going to have a great time. I don't know. But we don't mind. But I think it won't be long. But even if it is another thousand years before he comes for us, keep looking up. That's where Christ is. Set your eyes on him. And walk in an evil world with your eyes on Jesus. You know the end of the chapter. We look forward to that. But he's coming, folks. He's coming. Heavenly Father, these words before us here, there's a lot for us to comprehend. A lot of information in just ten little verses. But you're so good to us to leave it in print that we can go back and look at it again and compare it with the whole of Scripture. And though we say things in a place like our sermons today that are summary in nature of volumes of theological pieces and parts. We do so, Lord, that we might be encouraged, that we might be built up, that we might draw closer to our Savior and to trust Him all the more and keep our eyes on Him and only Him in a world that is so wicked. We are called to walk in this world as children of light. We're here to be examples of the righteousness of God and the change that Christ makes in a life. And maybe this week we have opportunity to share that with somebody because there's a lot of somebodies in our world heading to an eternal separation from Christ. And may that strike our heart. May it prompt us to speak. May it encourage us to walk with you. And may we have our eyes open and our mouths ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody who needs to hear it. Lord, if there's somebody among us today who does not know Jesus, please draw their heart to yourself. Only you can do this work. Only you can save. We just give the words. We ask that you put it in place and change a life forever. Even if there is one among us today, change your life, we pray. And thank you for those of us who know you for the good news of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior. We praise you for that today. Rejoice in our Savior's name. In Jesus' name, amen.